We begin with that assumption that we need to enter the story with a level of depth and particularity instead of looking at it from what we would say like 30,000 feet. You got to be in the dirt to actually know God, and you got to be in the dirt to know your own story. And that is, in some sense, the core of what we attempt to do as we engage people's trauma. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Gary Wilson Podcast. I'm here with my wife, Kelly, and we have a special guest with us today, Dr. Dan Allender. We're continuing this theme of renovating the heart for kingdom leaders. We believe that uh, God wants to change the hearts of the leaders, so changing the hearts of those that they affect around them. And Dr. Dan Allender is one who can truly help us deal with some of the issues of our heart. He was a professor for many years at Colorado Christian University, where he and uh, Dr. Larry Crabb had a master's degree program uh, for biblical counseling. My wife, Kelly, and I, who's in the studio here with me today, uh, both took that course uh, in the master's degree in biblical counseling. And uh, we learned a lot and we grew a lot, helped our marriage, helped our ministry. He's written many books. One of them is called To Be Told, Know Your Stories, Another, Shape Your Future, How Children Raise Their Parents, The Healing Path, as well as The Wounded Heart, which is a best-selling book and well-known around the world. Uh, Bold Love is another book that I, I thoroughly enjoyed, Intimate Allies, and God Loves Sex. So all of these are books that we hope that after the podcast today, uh, you'll do a little research, check it out, look for a place to buy that book or those books, and um, dig deeper, and you're going to find the healing and the renovation of the heart for kingdom leaders. We're so happy to have Dan Allender with us today, Dr. Dan Allender. Uh, we, we, my wife and I have so appreciated your ministry. Uh, I know you don't remember this. You've touched a lot of lives, but uh, we were in your uh, in your class uh, back in the late 90s over at Morrison, Colorado at the uh, at uh, Colorado Christian University, the, the program of uh, a master's degree of counseling there. So been a long time ago. It, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Back, w we were young, just young at that point. But again, what an honor to be with you both. Thank you. Thank you. Um, would you just begin by just telling us a little bit about the passion of your heart, uh, of your ministry, what you most feel called into and what you've been doing with your life and time and energies? Oh, what a, a grand and impossible question. Uh, you know, when... When I think about what my life seems to be about, uh, I keep coming back to this phrase, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, so I would say uh, I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, his death and resurrection and ascension. And apparently I need a lot of help because there's another part of me that doesn't believe. Uh, and uh, the reality of proof of that is I continue to move in directions that are apart from his purposes. So sin is always uh, a bit of an exclamation point uh, that there is deep unbelief, unhealing in all of us. So my work uh, in the larger category is I work with trauma. Uh, my work over the last 40-some years has been particularly in the area of sexual trauma, sexual abuse. And my privilege is I get to walk with people in the valley of the shadow of death, where there is deep, deep, deep questions about God, about his goodness, about his person, 
And in the middle of that, uh, the reality is that his rod and staff indeed protect me and protect others. So we enter into the complex waters of how do we live in a fallen world? There's the inevitability of trauma, inevitability that we will be harmed and do harm. And how do we live with that in the presence of a God who pursues us in ways that are beyond our wildest comprehension? That's kind of what my life has been about. But I've also been part of starting a few graduate schools. I am uh, was the president of the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Uh, we started something called the Allender Center for Trauma and Abuse. So there's a lot of work, a lot of books, a lot of this, that, and the other, but it always boils down to um, who is this God we follow? I love that. I love that. Now, you also have, uh, I noticed online, uh, what I don't know if you coined it or some of those people that are working with you, the, the Allender Theory. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? What it could? What would you say would be encapsulating the Allender Theory? Well, I, let me just say, you know, having a theory named after you because somebody in our organization put it on the website is a little on the border of preposterous. But I... I you know, the, the reality is we do have a way of engaging trauma that's through the lens of looking at story. Um, you know, I begin with the assumption, look, 70% of the Bible is story. So obviously, story is crucial for understanding God. Therefore, it has to be crucial for understanding ourselves. And uh, to enter into a human story, it, we're not just a compilation of like tens of thousands of stories. We are a story. There's something about our life that is meant to reveal the story of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. Uh, and in that sense, we are revelatory uh, of the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus is certainly revelatory of our lives. So we begin with that assumption that we need to enter the story with a level of depth and particularity, instead of looking at it from what we would say like 30,000 feet, you got to be in the dirt to actually know God. And you got to be in the dirt to know your own story. And that is, in some sense, the core of what we attempt to do as we engage people's trauma. How did you find the genesis for telling story? Because as I grew up a Christian and learning about Christ and, you know, looking at the Bible and taking, uh, you know, Philippians 3 to heart where I have to know Christ and I have to know him, you know, in his suffering and in his death and his resurrection. But I wasn't concerned about knowing me. And so I didn't even really consider myself as having a story because all things were pointing to Christ and knowing him, knowing his story. <clears throat> Excuse me. So where did that, um, what propelled you to say like, no, I need to look at my life, my story, and how God has written that? Uh, it's such a beautiful, thank you for that question. It's such a complex one, though, in that I don't think there's ever a moment where something so dawns on you that you get it. It, it seems more like rivulets that somehow come together. And when it comes together, it's kind of that moment of going, well, of course. You know, I when I went to seminary, I went to seminary because my best friend was going. Uh, I had been involved 
uh, I put it euphemistically, in illicit pharmaceutical sales for a long season. And uh, so my life was a mess. Uh, but my best friend, whom I had known since I was 13, had been uh, revealing, uh, speaking the gospel to me. Uh, in my world, I never heard of the Bible. When he said, God said, and I'm like, well, God said what? Well, as it says in the Bible, and I'm like, what's the Bible? Uh, so, you know, he had a lot of labor to invite me into a biblical worldview. But I came to know the so-called Romans Road, uh, something about the nature of the human heart and the brokenness and the need for the cross as the divide between us and God. But it all seemed uh, good for him, uh, but absolutely absurd uh, until um, the day came that we we discovered that the little cartel that I worked with had contracts out on us by the Cleveland Mafia. And that uh, awakened me. Uh, the notion of death uh, brought back something of what my best friend had been sharing with me over many, many years. So already I'm telling you a story. And it, my best friend is a really good man and has lived a really good life. And somehow our stories intertwined. And in that beginning of our relationship, I don't think he realized how bad I was. I didn't know how good he was. But somehow in the goodness of God and how God tells stories, there is almost always a sense of surprise, an unexpected. In other words, a predictable story is boring. On the other hand, when you have, shall we say, the rise, the fall, the complexity, the deepening of the plot, the characters, uh, something of the dialogue, you, you are intrigued. Like my wife and I are reading today, we read uh, Acts 27, Paul on the way to Rome. And some of the dialogue in, in the midst of the ship going down, the prospect of them all drowning, uh, this is where God shows God's self in a way in which if we step back and begin to go, wait a minute, if we're meant to reveal God, which we are, we reveal him through our unique lens of how God has revealed and shown himself to us. So in that sense, I don't think we can reveal God until we begin to have a sense of God revealing us, not only for how broken we are, but how beautiful we are, how even in some of the deepest broken parts of our story, there's something of the revelation of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. So I think in some ways, uh, my best friend, uh, school, conversations, but also I, I, as a very lonely and odd uh, only child of a really difficult, uh, uh, mentally ill mother uh, and a very, very silent, weak father um, made up stories in my brain to survive the craziness of my world. So I think in some sense, my story opened the door for me to read the story of God in a way in which it helped me to come back and actually have the story of God begin to be the lens by which I began to look at my own life with more clarity and I think more joy.
Yeah. Wow. That's I love profound. that. Yeah, yeah isn't that's that great? beautiful. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah. um, if um, you said something just a minute ago, you know, that we don't want our story to be boring. We, we you know, the, the drama of it, the tragedy of it, the joy of it, all of that mixed together that makes our story rich. Why do we seem to want to avoid that so much? Like, you know, I, I want I want a story, like, you know, that would be worthy of a movie, but I also want to escape all pain and sorrow. Uh, like, I, I wouldn't mind the boring story. Uh, do you know why the human nature does that? Or <laughs> I love, I love that. It's like, yeah, I want a ride that's very similar to what uh, Disney World has. It has enough excitement, but we know by the forces of litigation that they've got that ride down to a very safe, safe basis. So I think in some sense, we were made for danger, but we long for security. In that sense, we were made for awe. Um, we were made for a sense of just wonder, but also we were made for a, a, a presence of of goodness, of, of being beloved, where we know what it is to be safe. So. We are contradictory, but God put within us these impulses, these desires, one for adventure, wildness, uh, on the other hand, f for safety, for being cuddled and being nurtured in a way in which we know that we can rest. In that sense, we were made for faith and hope. If faith grounds us with a sense of security, we are confident. Hope sends us into the unknown. It sends us into danger. So in one sense, what I would argue is faith and hope are the basis by which we come to be able to love. And faith grounds us, hope moves us. So there you've got the interplay between I want danger, but not too much. Uh, I, I, but I want, I want goodness and security. But again, not too much. Otherwise, I feel smothered. Is that why people tend to, <clears throat> when they've been through danger, um, hurtful experiences, trauma, they tend to repress that because they they just want to be that in that safer place? Oh, yeah. That's so well said. Uh, I think the, the greater uh, of trauma that we know in our lives, the, the more likelihood that our faith begins to get fragmented. And that sense of we feel divided inside and divided from the world around us, including divided from God. But within that interior fragmentation, you know, when we begin to have hope, as I said, hope is dangerous. Hope is not a kind of, oh, it's all going to work out. No, no. Hope takes you out into the sea. Whereas I just said, you know, in Acts 27, you, you face a hurricane. So the reality is that when we feel overwhelmed with, in some sense, danger, given the fragmentation, we numb ourselves. And we often call that dissociation. We, we separate ourselves from reality, from feeling, from uh, hardship. And again, you can do that chemically, uh, through drugs, alcohol, or you can do that through vicarious observation, Netflix, uh, your phone, flipping through Instagram. Those become ways that we're escaping having to be ourselves in a reality that we feel like we can't change. When all that happens, um, we are struggling with faith and hope. Yeah. 
Well, I got about 50 questions, but I don't want to leave my wife out here. Do you yeah. have something, <clears throat> on, something on your mind? Well, yeah, I was just like, as a leader, I didn't realize that I was neglecting the flock by not inviting them to tell their story because I, I didn't realize that I had one. And so what is what is the way that we can kind of bring a shift to pastors and leaders and um, you know even missionaries so that they can truly be in touch with their heart and not neglect the hearts of those that they're caring for? Uh, it's such an important question because uh, it, the assumption that we make is you can take no one any further than you have chosen to go. And in that basic assumption of, look, if, if, if you don't actually know how to talk about Christ's death and resurrection and what it means that he sits at the right hand of the Father and has been given all authority— you're, you might stumble just to say, I love Jesus, and I'd, I'd love for you to know Jesus. But the assumption, again, is we need to grow in the direction we want other people to become. So I think the first thing is, do you know you are a story and that God is your, let me use the word that most people would use comfortably, he is your authority. But if we take the word authority, what's the core word to that? Author. He's your author, which he wrote you. I mean, just by virtue of your face, you know you're not like any other human being on the earth. Even if you have an identical twin, they're not exactly the same as you. So to step back and be able to go, he authored my face. He authored the kind of world I was put in. Again, careful to say this. He's not the author of sin. Nonetheless, he uses our failures to indeed progress the story that he's telling. So he uses even the harm of evil ultimately for the glory, his own and our glory. So if we can step back again, step back and say, we are a story, not not just we have stories, we are a story. That begins to then ask of you, well, what is it that you uniquely bring in terms of your life and your life experience? What do you reveal about the death of Jesus? In one sense, nothing is more important than the death, than the resurrection, than the ascension. So just those three. But again, we could talk about so much of the life of Christ, but at least those three. What does your life reveal about the issue of shame? Because the cross is about him taking on our shame. And the resurrection is about the freedom, the freedom from death. Where is your life about freedom? And what is your life been given that has power and gifting? And that's the ascension. So shame, freedom, and power. What's unique about your story with regard to those realities? And I promise your story is different than mine, mine different than yours, but we both desire 
to make known Jesus. And we do that through our face, our body, the way we have been crafted by God in, in our mother's womb, but also shaped by the profound losses and traumas, the heartbreaks to be who we are today. Right. Yeah. So that's good. It sounds like you're saying we're so, our identities in Christ, we're linked with Christ so that we have like, we share in his death, we share in his uh, sort of the the burial, so to speak. There's like a burial of our life and then there's a resurrection of our life too. So our story is intricately, closely linked to the the story of Christ. That's a unique look at the the gospel. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, and again, we go back to, we know that uh, the way the human brain works, uh, we actually are able to remember primarily through narrative story. You don't remember, you, you might have an acronym that you remember something by, but even that is a form of a story. So our brains are wired by God for story. Uh, and that's actually almost from birth itself. So when we begin to understand the nature of story, but particularly traumatic stories, that, that those stories, as I said, fragment and they create this dissociative numbness, but they also bring us so often a deep sense of isolation from ourselves and from others. So we need to be able to read what our heartbreak has brought us, and to help it open the door to categories to be able to name how our story is moving in directions that are not what God desired, in order to, in some sense, be part of this work of healing, because healing, in some sense, precedes leading. We're meant to lead, lead our children, lead our friends, lead ourselves into a greater relationship with Jesus. But you can't lead well unless there's ongoing, not, not, not a one-time shot here, ongoing healing of what our stories have taught us in terms of, well, uh, co-author Kathy Lorzell and I in a, a recent book called Redeeming Heartache, we talk about these three categories of orphan and stranger and widows. Those are stories that are full of trauma that take us in directions that are uh, just, in one sense, tragically far from the life of Jesus. Yet those stories, if we engage them, have the potential to open us up uh, to the goodness of God. So that's why you know we keep coming back to this. Will you engage your story? Will you actually get into the dirt? of your story rather than glide over it at about 10,000 feet with a kind of, oh, but God forgave me, or, you know, they, I need to forgive them. And we just get all, we press on to the high mark of maturity in Christ. I don't look behind me. I can't tell you. I wish I had a dollar. Oh my goodness. Uh, for every time someone has quoted to me out of Philippians that we don't look behind us so we don't have to look at what's happened to us in our past. And, and uh, you know, to go, well, would you mind reading that section again where Paul talks about being trained by Gamiel, uh, that he was a Pharisee of Pharisee, a Benjamite, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he's doing what? He's looking at his own past, saying, this is not the basis of justification, not the basis of don't look behind you, but don't look behind you for justification or explanation. 
look at your past to see how it is shaped to bring you where you are today. Right. Wow. How would somebody get started to, uh, if they have not been thinking about their own story, is there some mm. hints you could give us to help somebody start thinking in that context? Yeah, I, I would say let's start with like at the ages of five to 15. Uh, and just to say, write down five or six experiences where y you felt alone. And that's a simple word for the word orphan, where you felt alone. Uh, and, uh, and then within that, uh, two or three stories where you felt strange, which would be the notion of being a stranger. Um, but also where you felt caught in shame, uh, where you, in one sense, thought things would work out, and then things just fell apart. That's what we mean by being a widow. So where we were alone, where we felt strange, and where we knew something of the concept of death, maybe not literal, a dying of, but it could be your grandfather's death, but the death of a dream, the death of a desire, the death of a relationship are the categories of being a widow. So just having like a list, you know, three or four stories of where you felt alone or strange or where you knew death, and then to allow yourself to step back and go, what do I remember? Because the nature of trauma is our memories are fragmented. We will not have a clear beginning, middle, and an end. We'll have more like splintered images, sometimes sensations or emotions. Or one striking image may stand out. Can you write that out? Uh, what we have found, research has indicated, is that writing, and again, not with a computer, with a pen and paper. I know how radical that sounds to people. I, I mean, literally, I was talking to somebody the other day who went, I don't even know if I have a pen in my house. And it's like, like, what world do you come from? Nonetheless, would you take a pen and paper and just begin to write, like, context? What, what, what was the building, the room? What did it look like? Can you draw it out? If it's a bedroom, if it's a living room, it's a school room, can, can you literally begin to draw it out and begin to describe some of what the atmosphere looked like, felt like? Well, part of our brain that basically holds our thought and our emotion together is spatial. And often what happens with trauma is we lose the sense of space. So to return to a physical space and to allow yourself to say, what is that like? Then to begin to go, who are the characters? Uh, what did they likely say? And again, it, it, so often you have to work deductively with memory versus just recall. So what did this person sound like? Well, how did you speak? Can you begin to literally, literally write out what occurred? And again, not that you're saying everything happened just as you put it down on paper, but do you have a sense of the beginning and how that story moved? I, I can promise you, so few people ever choose to go that far in the dirt with regard to the story. It's more like, ah, oh, remember when my dad divorced my mom? It was pretty awful. You know, we were, it was a hard six months or so, uh, but we got through it. 
That's how people tell story uh, in 15 seconds. Well, when did you hear the divorce was going to occur? What room? Who told you? How, how did you feel? Where did you go? That's what we mean by will you get in the dirt? And the more you step into particularity, this is what we discover. The spirit will only give you what you're ready to hear, what you're ready to see and feel. So when we begin to do this work, we're, we're asking the spirit to begin to bring back what we need to remember to be able to enter the heartache and grief that eight-year-old, 12-year-old boy felt. Again, why? Because neurologically, that is still inside of you and is still operating in terms of influencing and affecting how you're living today, even if that's 40, 50 years from where you existed as an eight-year-old boy. So all this work is, again, opening the door for the Spirit of God to begin to address that eight-year-old boy who went through a divorce. Uh, and it was so terrifying and so heartbreaking that you've stayed, you know, 40,000 feet above that. And yet, so much of that orphan boy's heart has continued to operate today in a way that's, in some sense, contradicting the work you believe Jesus is doing in your life in terms of redeeming you uh, as a, a, a new priest for his story. Wow, that, that is both uh, deep, profound, uh, but as well as uh, a good starting place can help anybody listening to us today to just yeah. sort of begin to step into this. And then they certainly can go to your your new book. Uh, my wife Kelly and I read that and just loved it. It helped us yeah. all three categories we identified in our own life. And I know the readers, when they pick up that book, will, will do the same. Each week, this podcast reaches thousands of listeners. This critical work is made possible by the generous contributions of individuals like you who believe in World Challenge's mission. Thank you for listening and supporting World Challenge, transforming lives through the message and mission of Jesus Christ.